Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Inside Sports is brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Enjoy the show. Hey, Clark. Howard, hey, David. Howard. How you doing? We got less than a minute. Uh, okay. Yep. By the there way, before go. I forget, I meant to ask you, are you related to Aaron Judge in any way? Uh, it depends on how he's hitting. If he's hitting well, <laughs> he's, he's my nephew. If not, we have no idea who he is. The is no, no. So you're only related to the healthy Aaron Judge. That's correct. That's right. right. Good. Good. Selective. I like it. And then you got the Giants coach, Joe Judge. Well, that's <laughs> true, too. Everywhere. That's true, too. And then you got Here Come the Judge. There you go. People don't remember that. Most young people. I guess what well should that? Uh, we can go on with this for seconds. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Howard David Live as we begin the week following the completion of week one. Well, not really. There's still two games to play tonight in the NFL. But we welcome in from CBSSports.com Clark Judge, who, by the way, I learned is no relation to Aaron Judge of the Yankees unless he's on hot streak. Uh, so uh, one of the articles you wrote uh, recently might be uh, a vision into the future. You suggested is this Russell Wilson's time to win the MVP and you became a prophet. He had 322 yards yesterday and four touchdowns in a victory over Atlanta. Uh, but I think that the topic of the day probably would be five come from behind wins. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, especially that one in Detroit. Well, and also the Washington football team. Uh, you know, they, they look dead down 17 nothing. And I looked at the people, you know, in the, in the lineup. I go, where are the playmakers? They're not going to score. And lo and behold, they come from behind and it's a great story because it's Ron Rivera who's gone through uh, a raft of uh, off-season um, distractions or problems within that club. The nickname's been changed. Of course, we have the sexual allegations against the members of the front office. And then Ron, of course, is undergoing cancer treatment. In fact, had a halftime IV. But um, that's a that's a great story, uh, what he persevered through. And God, they had eight sacks right. of Carson Wentz and, and forced three turnovers. But then you look at what the Bears did, and after three quarters, I said, I think they got to get Foles in. I think they got to get Foles in. Good thing they weren't listening to me because Trubisky offered a great comeback in the fourth period with three touchdowns. But that's Detroit for you. That's the eighth time in the last two years that they've blown fourth quarter leads. Wow. Well, Washington was down 17 to nothing. Uh, to Philadelphia, and then Carson. It looked like Carson Wentz just imploded. Uh, look, uh, when you looked at the NFC East, you pre- everybody the consensus said Washington's going to finish fourth in the division. Well, uh, you know, well they're not going to be winless, that's for sure. And and you just wonder how far they can carry this. But more of concern would be Carson Wentz and the Eagles, projected by a lot to either Philadelphia or Dallas to win the division. But this is a bad start for Philadelphia and a very bad loss. Yeah, it's a bad loss because they, they, uh, 
actually uh, snatch victory from that snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. I mean, they they came back to the pack, and then Washington you could see gaining in confidence, but. I give the Redskins' defense a lot of credit, and Jack Del Rio, their defense coordinator. I thought that was a really smart hire by Ron Rivera, who also comes from the defensive side of the ball. But um, they pressured him, forced him into mistakes, and as the game went on, you could see the momentum changing dramatically. And yeah, it's a bad start for Philadelphia, but you know they still, I mean, listen, it's one game. I still think they're the team to beat in that division, they or Dallas. But um, Dallas looked better, but not, you know, much better than, than Philadelphia, but um, they look better. Uh, they just have to get they have to get the Dak Prescott on track in those close games. I mean, that's another stat that sort of jumps out at you. They're 1-7 in, in the last two years in one-possession games, and that means they're not playing to the end, Howard. I mean, somehow they're faltering at the end, and Prescott was not good on third downs yesterday. He wasn't very good, and, and that team didn't have the offense when it needed. So the NFC East to me is completely wide open. It's not a very good division. Somebody yeah. else going to win. I still go with Dallas and Philadelphia. Yeah, getting back to your Chicago-Detroit notation, 27-23, the Bears win. There were those that questioned the Bears starting Trubisky, but, you know, he was solid yesterday. Was he spectacular? No, but they got the job done and, you know, came from, uh, what, 17 down in the fourth they quarter? Down, they were down by uh, three touchdowns. Yeah, I mean, they were down by three touchdowns. They were down uh, 23 to six. Yeah, at one point, and um, uh, it's it's just amazing to, to see what they did in the fourth period because you go, Mitch Trubisky is he's up, he's down. It's a roller coaster ride with him, and honestly, first three quarters, I just thought, boy, it's the same old Mitch Trubisky we saw last year, and we've seen much of his career. I now understand why he brought Nick Foles in. At some point, we're going to see him, and they didn't replace him. They left him in, and then the fourth quarter. Um, he looks like Sid Luckman. I mean, the guy suddenly started playing out of his mind and gets him to come back. But that said, Detroit should have won that game. First of all, they had the lead that they should not have blown. But secondly, at the end of the game, Matthew Stafford drove in the length of the field, and he throws the touchdown pass to DeAndre Swift, who drops it. And that, that was a huge, huge mistake. So Detroit blew a game. Uh, you know, to me, Chicago was a great comeback, but Detroit really let them back in. And then when they had a chance to win that ball game, DeAndre Smith dropped the ball in the end zone. Clark Judge of uh, CBSSports.com, the most anticipated game yesterday was uh, the 40-plus-year-old quarterbacks going head-to-head in New Orleans and Tampa Bay with Brady and Breeze. Neither quarterback, I mean, Brady had a bad game, a pick six plus another interception. Breeze did not have a Breeze-type game, but he didn't need to. Their defense harassed Brady all day long. Uh, I mean, the pick six I mentioned, uh, you, how many times you hear anybody say, oh, New Orleans won because their defense won the game? Well, you, you might draw that conclusion after yesterday. Look, uh, he's got a lot of weapons, Drew Brees, and this team is going to be interesting to watch throughout the entire year. Yeah, they are, and, and as they have been in recent years, they're always there at the finish line, uh, partly because they have, but partly because lately what they've done is they've built a, a team of complementary pieces around him. Um, he's got a running game. Uh, he's got a much better defense than he had, I think, back I think somewhere around like five years ago. Their defense was embarrassingly bad. And then they decided to fix it. And then Dennis Allen comes in, and they're much better. They're much better in the secondary. I thought Brady looked out of sync with his receivers. Mm. I, I really don't understand this sort of group of people that just love it when he struggles. And they, and they can't wait to declare his career over. He had a bad game. 
I mean, really, he had a bad game. It's the third straight game he's thrown a pick six. It's the first time in two years he's thrown multiple interceptions. But that can happen, especially at the age of 43. But I'm going to tell you right now, he's not going away. Drew Brees isn't either. We're going to see both of those guys in the playoffs. I don't know if you realize it, but Tom Brady has now thrown a pick six in his last three games in a row. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And that's uh, including the playoffs. That's extraordinary for him. But, um, you know, he's he's not a young quarterback. He's with a new team. It's going to take time to get used to these guys and get some timing down. But uh, it'll happen. I guarantee it'll happen. They're in a tough division. And as somebody pointed out, it's not the AFC East or the AFC Least where he was feasting on Miami and Buffalo and the Jets. It'll be a difficult, more difficult run for him. But he's a competitive guy. He's out to ter- he's out to prove something and determined to prove something. And I think he will. I think he'll get that team to the playoffs. I mean, they could go deep into the playoffs. To me, it's much like what Joe Montana went through when he left the 49ers. But uh, I don't think he's going to get to the Super Bowl, much like Montana did with Kansas City. I don't want to minimize uh, the, the victory by Buffalo yesterday, but the Jets stink. I mean, <laughs> there's no other way to describe it. They are they they looked inept. They looked on. They looked like they were unprepared. They were poorly coached. They they are predictable. You can look at their game plan. By the way, what what Aaron, uh, what Adam Gase ought to do? Take that card he's looking at, roll it up, and throw it away, because it's predictable. He has no creativity whatsoever. And when somebody, when I look at the headlines in the New York paper and I see same old Jets, they'll know they're worse. And the. <laughs> The 27-17 final score is not a true indication. The game was not that close. No, it wasn't. That's a misleading score. Uh, the Jets were out of it from the very beginning. The first half was an embarrassment. Um, I, it goes back to Adam Gase being hired by the team. I didn't understand it. He came from Miami. I didn't think he really distinguished himself with the Dolphins. But they hired him there, and I thought, why? Um, because he got along with the GM. Well, then, you know, the GM's gone, and they've got a new one, Joe Douglas, and um, you know, some of this, I mean, a lot of it certainly goes on Adam Gase's shoulder, but some goes on the front offices, too. They've had poor drafts. He hasn't had, um, Sam Darnold, I'm talking about quarterback, hasn't had great pieces around him. Um, I look at, who's their, who's their go-to running back? Frank Gore? He's 37 years old. I mean, he can't be the guy. Um, and, you know, on the outside, it's Crowder, and yeah, he, you know, finally came alive in the second half, the offense perked up, but... To me, it, it is somewhat the same old Jets, except I'm with you, because Gase afterwards said, you know, they were talking about the offensive woes, and he said, it's completely different from what we went through last year, and I agree with him, because it's worse. They look worse than they did last year. So, yeah, for Jets fans, it be a long season. Look, I, I don't want to minimize Josh Allen, because I thought he played very well yesterday. He was clean, didn't turn the ball over, threw for over 300 yards. Uh, he ran the ball against. As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, Josh Allen had more rushing yards than the entire Jets team. That yeah, just can't that's happen. Right. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the one question I've got about him is is the turnovers. I mean, he did turn over the ball a couple times with fumbles, um, and then he missed a wide open receiver in the back of the end zone when he was rolling left. Um, there's there are parts of his game that that make you still wonder: is he there or not? I mean, this should be the year we kind of make a. Uh, a definitive statement about him or he makes a definitive statement about himself and, and I do think he's come a long way the second half of last year to me he was the quarterback you want to see in there and yesterday um, I thought he made most of the plays through over 300 yards uh, looked good they I mean they were in complete control as you said and I don't want to minimize it either because honestly 
I think the Bills might be one of those teams. In fact, I think it will be one of those teams that at the end is going to threaten Kansas City and or Baltimore for the top of the AFC. But for the meantime, in the meantime, we're looking at one game. Josh Allen played very well yesterday, except with a couple of those sort of plays. You go, oh, my gosh, here we dropped the ball again. Oh, he missed a wide-open receiver. <laughs> um, well, those in time will come around because, as we're talking about, it's one game after no preseason game. So uh, everything's sort of trial and error, and, and for intense, all intents and purposes, he and the Bills are very good yesterday. You can take uh, Clark Judge from CBSSports.com. You can take one positive from the Jets yesterday. Marcus May had two sacks. Yeah. So he's yeah. the guy who's filling, you know, he replaces uh, Jamal Adams in that role. They played it side by side last year. And how'd you like to be Jamal Adams yesterday? He's in Seattle and they win easily. And he's looking at the Jets and going, boy, am I glad I'm out of there. Oh, no. He, yeah, they rescued him from the Jets. And uh, he was a star player that he's the kind of guy that you don't let get away. And unfortunately, Many of those guys have gotten away from the Jets, uh, but he was the one guy you go, you got to find a way to keep him. But he wanted out. They got him out of there. They got a lot for him, and uh, they should because he's a, an elite player, and he's going to find a home and has found a home in Seattle. That, to me, is the team I have my eyes on when you started this conversation about Russell Wilson. That's one of the reasons. But the other reason is defense. When they were great, really great, they had the Legion of Boom. And then guys – you know, inevitably left because once you pay a quarterback a lot of money, you can't keep the uh, parts around him, all of them. And, and they, you saw the, uh, the Legion of Boom being picked for uh, free agents, and Richard Sherman's gone, and Wilson's gone, and then you know they're, they're going, they're losing numbers of guys. Uh, Michael Bennett's gone, and you're, you know, all these guys all of a sudden are disappearing, and um, and. You know, it's it's a it's a defense now that I think can dictate to people because in the back end they had Cam Chancellor and uh, and they had Richard Sherman. They, they, they dictated to people, and I thought they lost some of that with, as I said, the uh, defections or the actually free agent departures of some of those real stars. And and now when you look at Jamal Adams back there and what they did with Atlanta, because that's another misleading score. They were way ahead, and then it was garbage time, and Atlanta got some late touchdowns. But that's a big win for a good Seattle team. They go cross country, play at 10 a.m., and they play in a stadium where Matt Ryan's really good in, in season openers. I mean, in, in uh, home openers, he was 11-1 and one before yesterday, but they drilled him and they drilled them, and uh, as I said, that's a team you're going to have to watch throughout the season. Ryan throws a 450 yards. Julio Jones has a monster game, nine catches for a buck 57. Uh, but but this is a typical uh, Matt Ryan game. His team gets beat. He puts yeah. up huge numbers because they're playing from behind the entire game. Let me let me shift gears a little bit and talk about a trade that was made that will haunt the team for the entire year. And I'm talking about the Hopkins trade to Arizona for David Johnson. Hopkins goes 14 catches for 151 yards and a touchdown, and Arizona's win over San Francisco, which is a critical win because it's in the division. Uh, I think the DeAndre Hopkins trade, I don't know what precipitated that. If it's strictly money, well, then you, you cannot let maybe the best receiver in football get away. I don't care what the issue is. Yeah, you can't, and, and that was a lopsided deal. And I, I don't really care what David Johnson does. You can find running backs 
on any shelf and, and good running backs. Maybe not great ones, but good ones. And he's a good one. He's a good running back. But he's a running back that was coming off a severe injury and, and showed some life, I think, in the second half of last season. But you don't make that deal uh, unless you are absolutely convinced that this guy can't play here, that there's no way he can stay here. And going back to Jamal Adams, it sounded that was like that was the case there. He talked his way out of there. Now I still am one of those who believes definitely player. He's not talking his way out unless I find I absolutely can't get along with him. He's not going to play here. There's got to be something that's going to be done. And and maybe that was the situation with Hopkins. Certainly it looks like there might have been some friction between him and Bill O'Brien. But Bill O'Brien is a GM. His record isn't good. And when that trade was made, I thought, there's got to be something else here. I don't get this. How could you give up DeAndre Hopkins? And the other night when we were watching the uh, season opener in Kansas City, they were talking about David Johnson. At some point they said, well, you know, David Johnson, they're proving that um, this deal isn't as lopsided as, you know, the seam, the blah, blah, blah. And I know he had over 100 yards rushing, but who cares? He was meaningless. And afterwards, um, Bill O'Brien said, we've got a lot to get fixed. Yeah, you do, because you lost an elite receiver. This is an elite running back. And, and you just got smoked by the, the defending Super Bowl champions. How are you going to bridge that gap? We're well, not going to bridge it by losing DeAndre Hopkins. And I think you saw what he means to a team in that San Francisco game yesterday because he made every catch possible. And when they had to make a drive down the length of the field coming from behind late, he was a go-to guy. And, and um, he, he's going to be that way all season, provided he stays healthy. So I agree with you, uh, Howard, that there's just no way you make that deal. I mean, I think Bill O'Brien's put a gun to his head in terms of his job security and said, listen, I can do what I want. Okay, yeah, you can, but you better make sure it works out right. And this one's going to haunt him all year. Well, I, I don't know if it's just that, too, because Jacksonville comes from behind, beats Indianapolis, uh, despite the fact that Phillip Rivers had a pretty good day in, in his debut with uh, the Colts. But, uh, I mean, Jacksonville, nobody expected them to even contend for the division. And, yeah, it's only one week, and Tennessee plays tonight. But the fact of the matter is, is that you're looking at, at things that happened yesterday that shouldn't happen, specifically the Dallas Rams game last night. Uh, I don't know why, with 11 minutes to go in the game, you're down three, and they, did, they, they decide to go for it on fourth down and three, rather than kicking a field goal that would have tied the game with still 11 minutes to go. I just didn't understand what Mike McCarthy was doing. Yeah, I, I think what he was doing was telling his offense because he's new there. It was his first year basically telling those guys, I believe in you, and this is my vote of confidence. I know we can get three yards when we have to, okay? We're going to get it. And you're right. I mean, it looks like a mistake when, when it doesn't happen. If it does happen, we go, ah, genius. You know, it's Riverboat Ron in, in Carolina when he was there. Um, uh, or it's uh, Sean Payton when he was doing all the fourth down gambles. It, it looks great when it works. When it doesn't, we do question it. But I think he was looking at it saying, listen, I believe in you guys, and if we don't get it, I know we can catch these guys. I know we can. And I thought he could, too. I mean, the Rams weren't really doing anything other than sort of staying just out of reach. But uh, if you believe in, listen, just catch them, and then we can beat them with a late field goal. Yeah, I subscribe to that. But it didn't bother me maybe as much as it did you, Howard, because I thought, honestly, he was saying, we've got so many weapons on offense, we should be able to get that those three yards. And they should. But they didn't, and that's why you're questioning it now. Yeah, uh, look, and they host Atlanta this week. Um, we haven't talked about New England yet. The other part of that Brady trade, Cam Newton looked like uh, he was 25 again. He, 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 made, he made a lot of runs and all of that, but here's, I caution Patriot fans. Yeah, they won the game yesterday. They beat Miami, and we don't know who Miami is really yet, 
But the fact of the matter is, New England against a team that's got a really good defense in the secondary is going to give Newton troubles because he's not going to run the ball 15 times a game. And except for Julian, except for Edelman, what else has he got in terms of a, of a vertical passing game? got the hardest schedule in the league according to the evaluation based on last year but but the last thing you want to do now is go cross country and play a team that's potentially the team that that can represent the nfc in the super bowl let's go to tonight pittsburgh gets the return of ben roethlisberger and that's great news for the steelers the giants i don't know i mean saquon barkley is legit they've got some talent on this team but and i think daniel jones is a keeper at quarterback I'm just not sure about the Giants, uh, and I'm interested to see uh, if Ro- Roethlisberger's got the rust off with Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, they're in obviously a very difficult division, so th- that's one game that will be interesting tonight. The other game is the Tennessee-Denver game, and I-, I don't know. I don't think what happened last year to Tennessee was a one-hit wonder. I think they're for real. Yeah, they could be. Uh, I, again, question what they've got at quarterback, and, and maybe Ryan Tannehill from last year is the Ryan Tannehill we see this year. It was one year, so let's see what happens. He came off the bench, succeeded Marcus Mariota, and then basically put Marcus Mariota out of a job, and they believe in him. That's why they gave him the big contract. Derrick Henry, they believe in him too, and why not? After what he did down the stretch and in the playoffs, gave him a big contract. Uh, I, I, I wonder about the number of hits that Henry's taken. Maybe he gets the ball a lot, and he got the ball a lot in the playoffs. How he comes back from that, or how he withstands it as he gets older. Um, but Tannehill, to me, is more the, the question mark. Um, can you win with him throwing 14 or 15 times a game? They did at times last year, I mean, with or being successful that much of the game. But um, if you get behind... Now you've got to rely on Ryan Tannehill. And it worked some during the regular season. Um, it, it didn't at the ultimately in the uh, end of the playoffs when it went to Kansas City. But um, it's, a, it's an interesting team because they've got Jadavian Clowney now, too. So you've, made, you've helped yourself defensively. you got most of the parts back offensively. So uh, why shouldn't you go deep in the playoffs? Maybe they should. I, I just don't know. Um, but I think that's an interesting team to watch. Um, Denver, you know, I yeah, listen, I, Denver, I, I just – never have really taken him seriously since Peyton Manning retired for numbers of reasons but you know when we had the, uh, 
a Von Miller injury at the beginning of the year here. And, you know, mm. look at that and go, oh, here we go again with Denver. It's going to be another 7-9 and nine year or whatever it is. It's going to be a 500 season. But going to the first game that you mentioned, that to me is the more intriguing of the two, simply for what you were talking about. I'm really interested with Ben Roethlisberger's got coming back. He missed most of last year. And, and what's he going to be like? What's that team going to be like? We're used to seeing the Steelers in the playoffs. They weren't there last year. Do they go more run-heavy now? Or is Roethlisberger going to get the bulk of the offenses he has in the past and start throwing for three and 400 yards? I don't know. I have no idea what we're going to see. What I do know is from the Giants' standpoint, they're vulnerable in the secondary. They've lost a lot of parts in the secondary. And so what are they going to be like this year? And quite honestly, I look at them as a team that would be battling the Washington football club, the Washington football team, for last place in that division. Washington's already won. Do I think the Giants won tonight? I don't. I think the Steelers are a better team. The Steelers, uh, they got a receiver named Juju Smith-Schuster. Now, for years, he's been under the shadows. Uh, He started to emerge last year. I look for him to have a huge year. Uh, And they got got Eric Ebron, obviously, a tight end. But I'm concerned. I'm not concerned. I'm interested to see what a rookie wide receiver named Chase Claypool is going to help Roethlisberger accomplish. Yeah, me too. I know you're high on him. You mentioned him earlier when we talked. Um, I am too. I mean, um, I, I, I think... Juju Smith-Schuster is, is the guy I'm really more interested in simply because he sort of disappeared last year as what the rest of the offense did is they kept going down the depth chart to get quarterback up to quarterback in there. Um, but with, with Roethlisberger back in there and the complimentary piece of James Washington uh, to, to Smith-Schuster, you mentioned Claypool, I mean, they've got weapons. Um, you know, Connor's got a, a, a rookie behind him. I mean, they're going to they're run the ball as they will because of the Steelers, but the question I've got is get the, do they get the ball down the field as they did not or could not last year when Mason Rale, Rudolph and others had to take over? I, I think they can, and I think Roethlisberger has something to prove. As some of these others, like I can mention Brady, he's older, he's not hurt. Uh, Breeze, he's probably in the last year of his, his uh, career. Those guys have something to prove, too. I think Big Ben does, too, because a couple years ago we were saying, is he even going to play? I mean, it sounded like he didn't want to play anymore. I think he, he's determined to prove it. Yeah, I do want to play. I'm going to show you that I haven't lost anything by being out of season. But he is a guy who's sort of injury prone. Let's see what he's got tonight. I do think they come out, and, and I think they come in a very resounding way. I'd be shocked if they if they lost. But again, <laughs> I was shocked when Washington won too. Yeah, Clark Judge from CBSSports.com. Let me ask you about two quarterbacks. Uh, number one is a rookie quarterback uh, who started yesterday, obviously, for his first game with Cincinnati. We're talking about Joe Burrow. Uh, what did you see in him? Uh, now, look, they lost the game to the Chargers, who I think are better than they showed, uh, and they escaped with a 16-13 victory, scoring 10 points in the fourth quarter to take the game away from Cincinnati. But as you watched Burrow, he, he to me, he looked very comfortable. Yeah, I, 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 I listen, he missed some throws, but at the end of the game, what did he do? He took them down the field and put them in a position to tie that ball game. And that's what I look for in quarterbacks, especially at the end of the end of first halves or two minutes at the end of the game. How do they perform under pressure at the end of halves, but especially at the end of games? And when he got the ball there at the end, I thought, okay, let's see if he can drive them down the field. And sure enough, he put them in position to tie that game and go into overtime. That's what I like. Now, there was a pass, um, I think somewhere, I don't know if it was in the third or fourth quarter, A.J. Green's wide open down the middle of the field, and he missed him. He didn't miss that pass last year at LSU. It's a different ball game now. It's a completely different game, different players, a much higher uh, level of play 
he discovered that. He uh, discovered what it's like to be under duress with a pass rush. But all in all, I liked what I saw from him. And, mm. and I think he'll only get better. That's a, that was a great start for him. Okay, so he lost. But he was, and that team was in contention throughout the ball game. You missed some opportunities. That's going to happen when you're a rookie. Eventually, it'll click. And I, and I think, and I hope, they found something because it's been far too long for Cincinnati to me to be down. I want to see them back in the playoff picture. And this time, for the first time since 1991, win in a playoff game. I want to see them back. And they, we need to have the Bengals back on the map. And, and this is a start, at least. Well, they're going to have a short week to talk about it because they're going to play Cleveland on Thursday. That reminds me of Baker Mayfield. Uh, Baker Mayfield, you know, every year for the last three years, we said, here come the Browns. The Browns are back. The Browns are back. Not so fast because you saw a Baltimore team that just took them apart. And Lamar Jackson, you, I mean, you mentioned about, uh, about Russell Wilson, candidate for MVP. <laughs> Lamar Jackson looks like he, he is in complete charge of that offense. And, I mean, they blasted a Cleveland team that they should have, and they did. But Baker Mayfield uh, had a pedestrian-type game. Yeah, he did. And, and keep in mind, that's the Cleveland team that went into Baltimore last year, went into Baltimore and, and won. And Baltimore didn't lose very often last year. lost twice during the regular season. So um, I, I thought we were going to learn a lot about Cleveland because at this time last year, many people were saying, hey, it's the most talented team in that division. They should win that division. And I do remember saying on um, – numbers of broadcasts and you know i agree with you but it's the cleveland browns it's murphy's law at work because yeah. whatever can go wrong yeah. will go wrong with them injuries bad plays mistakes whatever and sure enough that's what they played into and now we're going through another head coach and to me it's the same old same old doesn't make any difference who's coaching that team whether it's bland collier ball brown whatever they can't get these guys out of their own way and you mentioned baker mayfield yeah i, I look at him and wonder what's What's going on here? Because he's not the quarterback that we thought he was in his rookie year. And you're going, boy, this guy, uh, he's got so much promise. This team's going places. They've got talent galore in that club. You know, Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt in the backfield, Jarvis Landry on the outside. OBJ, I mean, to me, he was supposed to thrive here. What's happened to him? I, I don't know. I mean, they've got numbers of tight ends who are really good, and yet they, they got smoked yesterday by Baltimore. That game, as you mentioned, wasn't close at all. And and they couldn't produce anything offensively. And, um, and is that an indication of how good Baltimore is? Or maybe, maybe, I don't know. But it's a, definitely an indication of how bad Cleveland is. But again, I mean, I feel sorry for the Browns fans because that's another team I want to see back in the playoff picture. I'd like to see Cleveland back there because their fans are so loyal and so good and the team stinks. So uh, to me, it's the, the Browns or the, the, the Jets. You flip a coin. Which one's worse? I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not even going to go out on a limb. The Jets are the worst team in the league. Yeah, they are right now. After one week, yeah, sure they are. I, absolutely. Because I will think if you put these two teams against each other, the Browns have something the Jets don't, and that's talent. Well, look, I thought Dan, Sam Darnold, and I don't know that I'm laying it on Darnold. I mean, it's just not, nothing. Not. He doesn't have anything around him. Well, he doesn't have anything around him, Howard. Well, that plus the fact that every time you watch him, it's predictable. First down, hand it off to the running back, or right up the middle, one yard, two yards, maybe. Same thing over and over and over again. That's coaching or, or lack of creativity. Yeah, right, and then right. the offensive line, which is completely revamped. Uh, Darnold, again, is on the run. It seems like every play he doesn't get the kind of protection. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And, and it's unimaginative play calling, uh, pedestrian uh, 
execution, honestly, with exceptions that we saw in the second half. Now, are, are they going to pick it up from the second half and that's more what we're going to see? I, I don't know. I mean, I think the Browns are playing, and the Browns, the Bills are playing, um, to simply say, listen, we're, you know, the second half, we're, we're, we're going to just let this clock run out. We want to, we know we can beat you. We've got a comfortable lead. Uh, I never felt that game was ever, ever in doubt. I don't think the Bills did either. But um, New York, the, the, the Jets have, the Jets have said the talent they've had, you know, and by and large, a lot of it, when they do have good talent, like we mentioned Jamal Adams, they let it get away. And, and that can't happen again and again. Eventually, you've got to build something there. And I would ask a Jets fan, what are you building? Because it looks like the same thing from last year, but as you mentioned, based on one game, maybe worse, maybe worse. So um, I, I don't know where there's hope there. I mean, honestly, I think, you know, I, I'm not a big guy in blowing up situations because I think continuity is everything, but you got to blow it up when it's not working over and over again. I think they're bringing the wrong people in there. And again, I, I go probably straight to the top and go, let's start with ownership and work our way down. I don't think there's real leadership there, and, and they keep bringing in GMs who think they know what they're doing and ultimately don't, and then they're gone, and they hire coaches who think they know what they're doing and ultimately don't, and then you get players who are brought in there and, and eventually leave. So it's not—it's a recipe for disaster, honestly, and that's what we've got. Now, I feel for the Jets fans because I look at them and go, like I do with Cleveland. Well, actually, not like I do with Cleveland. I look at the Jets fans and say, yeah, there's no reason to hope. With Cleveland, at least you've got talent. At least you've got talent, and you've got a new coach there, so we don't know what's going on. So maybe that was an aberration, but for one game, Cleveland looked awful. I'm going to tell you one final thing to demonstrate how bad it is. My 15-year-old grandson lives and dies with the Jets. It got so bad yesterday, he said, what time is the U.S. Open men's final? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least that was competitive. That was a team yeah, that could yeah, somebody could come back. Go ahead and tell <laughs> me who played in that match yesterday. Yeah, it was. Tennis. I, I grew up in a tennis family, so I actually switched over to look at it, too, at times, but then came back to the NFL. Hey, Clark, thanks for your time. As always, you stay safe. Thanks. Thanks, Howard. Take care. Clark Judge of... <laughs> oh, my God, CBSSports.com. I'm going to shift gears and go back to the hoops where uh, Andrew Greif resides, and he is the guy that covers... The L.A. Clippers, who they, they lost yesterday. Oh, my God. Hey, it's Andrew. What do you say, Andrew? It's Howard David. What the heck did you see yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same thing as Game 5, really. Oh, my goodness. I, I You know, I, I, was, I, I forgot for a second that the game was on between the Nuggets and the Clippers because it is a football Sunday. And I said, wait a minute, I'm going to go put this game on. And I looked and I said, ah, the Clippers are up 19. I'll catch them later. And I put them on later in the – and the Nuggets are up. I said, what in the world happened? Yeah, I mean, it's this is a developing theme, I should say, continuing theme throughout the entire season. You know, lost leads have been a problem. They've lost seven games this year when they've been leading by 15 points or more. And it's um, it's uh, it's it really is something that is, I think, both schematic and also focus, you know, related to why, what's happening because, you know, they, they – talked a lot last night about how when when they were at their best they're playing fast you know taking off defensive rebounds pushing up court uh when their defense basically stopped getting any defensive stops uh you know those defensive rebounds go down they have fewer chances to push up the court um so there's there's reasons like that you know they 
Denver did a really good job keeping Kawhi Leonard from getting to his spots. He's been excellent from the mid-range all playoffs. He didn't make a single mid-range shot yesterday and, and barely even took any shots in the mid-range. Clippers couldn't make anything inside the paint. You know, Denver kind of packed the paint. So there were, there were some you know, real reasons there why Denver was able to key that second half. Um, but, you know, this team just seems to, for whatever reason, um, really struggle with fo- keeping their focus on putting teams away. And it's something that was there at the start. And it's, you know, even gone on now. And it's, um, you know, Doc Rivers said that he spent all of his timeouts trying to say, you know, we have to keep playing like we were. We have to keep playing like we were. But there's just, um, there's just, there seems to be a focus issue with this team and why they can't uh, put teams away. It's, it's, uh, it's very strange. Andrew, you get your two stars that combined for 58 points. The rest of the team scores 40. That's just not going to cut it. It isn't. You know, but no one played well in the second half. You know, the rest, everybody else besides Paul George and Kawhi Leonard shot four of 17 in the second half yesterday. But, uh, but Leonard and George also did not play very well in the second half in terms of offensively. So there is there's a whole lot of blame to go around. I think that, you know, we, we've talked ad nauseum about Montrez Harrell and how this is a really tough matchup for him, and it is. And they stuck with him longer against Nikola Jokic yesterday defensively than I thought they would, especially after they'd made some, some rotation adjustments in the first half to really avoid that. Um, but, you know, even the center, it beats the Zubats. Um, you know, he offensively was not as sure-handed as he usually is. Um, so, and Patrick Beverly, you know, he, he fouled out after only 18 minutes. He played 27 minutes in Game 5. You know, if you can, he's a second-team all-defensive player. You know, the more positions he's on the floor, the better it should be for your defense. So that was a bit of undisciplined play that was unnecessary. So it, this really does spread all the way around the entire roster. Um, it's, just a, it's just a brutal performance. Andrew Greif from the L.A. Times. Uh, you, I mean, what a difference. You get the first half, the Clippers are up 63-47, to 47, and they get outscored. And this is amazing. 64-35 to 35 in the second half. I mean, I rarely, in, and you too have probably even been around long enough, that you don't usually see this kind of disparity from one half to the next. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's weird because last year was a team, I covered a Clippers team that, was making these comebacks uh, with regularity. They were the ones that were punishing teams that would let up and lose focus. And now, they're, now it's the, the script has been flipped. Uh, the proverbial script. It's it's really odd because um, there are there is so much from that team that is still hanging around. Uh, it's not like this is a, a totally turned over roster, um, but there just seems to be a missing element. And I don't know if that's a voice that's missing in, in the locker room. I don't know if that's an urgency that somehow is not there even during the playoffs when they have a chance to um, make their first conference final in 50 years as a franchise. I'm not sure, but, you know, it's, uh, it, it's hard to, it's hard to look at, uh, you know, the second basically being outscored 62 to 30 of the final 22 minutes and think that that is just, um, you know, only some schematic things, only some on-court things. I think there really is just kind of, for some, whatever reason, a void in terms of uh, understanding how to put teams away. Hey, my, I'm, look, I don't know if you turn things off like a light switch, um, but that's basically what the Clippers have to do. And meanwhile, Denver, I mean, they've been here before. They were down 3-1 to one to Utah and came from behind and won the series with three straight wins, and they're one win away from doing it again. That's the element that going into Game 7 I think is most interesting. You know, Denver has played now 
in four consecutive series uh, that have gone to Game 7. They're 2-1 and one so far in Game 7s. Uh, they've won five consecutive games when facing elimination, going back to the start of this series, uh, start of this postseason, I should say. So this is a team that all week has been saying that it's loose and relaxed and even saying that like it's funny like on game days, like facing elimination, they, the locker room almost has like a funny vibe to it. Uh, so they are comfortable. And the Clippers obviously have never been in this position with this team. Uh, even yesterday, Doc Rivers said that this is a veteran team, but they're not a veteran team together. So they are still trying to find out um, who they really are, even at this late date. And so that's a, that's a, it's, I think it's a really powerful contrast between the two, the two teams and where they're at right now. I look at a Denver team, and you see Jamal Murray's emerged as a legitimate star in this league. Uh, did he have an explosive game yesterday? No, not really. He had a good game. It was Jerk, uh, Jokic that, that had the big game with 34 points and 14 rebounds. The thing that I love about this guy, he could be as, as, as good a passing big man as I've seen in a long time. Yep, that's, uh, it's, that's what Don Rivers said. He felt like maybe you know Bill Walton is probably one of the best passing bigs of all time, but in terms of players he has seen, uh, Doc felt that Jokic was right up there with him. Um, he's, he's amazing because you know, the Clippers have thrown a lot at him this, this series, and almost nothing has really worked with consistency. They have double-teamed him, and that's been pretty good in terms of getting the ball out of his hands for turnovers. Um, he's been, Jokic has been caught careless with the ball when he gets double-teamed. You know, they'll have Stubots, um, you know, posting up against him defensively, and then a guard will run in kind of around his hips and try to swipe at the ball. And that, that has worked more often than I, than I anticipated because he's such a smart player. You'd think you'd see that coming time after time. Um, so that, that has worked, and Zubats has been pretty admirable, I'd say, with most of his defense, but he still, I mean, he burned them for 34 points yesterday. He still finds ways to get free. Uh, they're still not able to defend all the time his outlet passes that are, you know, 60 feet or more. So it's it's a really amazing performance to watch. I mean, I, I, I feel like having gone from watching Luka Doncic in the first round, kind of having his breakout performance to... Uh, you know, Jokic kind of cementing his status as an all-NBA center has been pretty special to watch. In addition to that, we're talking with Andrew Greif from the L.A. Times. Uh, Michael Porter, and, and, and maybe, you, I don't know if you heard this as all, Michael Porter Jr. the other day, after they won, you almost got the idea he was critical of his teammates and critical of the coaching, that he didn't feel like he was invo- as involved as he needed to be did you get that vibe from him, or, or am I looking for something that's not there? Yeah, that was um, that was the that was his post game comment after Game Five, and it drew excuse me after Game Four, uh, it drew a ton of criticism. Um, you know, NBA players were talking about it. Um, Mike Malone said that he thought that it should be held. Um, you know, an internal discussion from the team, not not something aired publicly. So yeah, there was absolutely definitely. Um, some some controversy around what he said, but then in Game Five he hit maybe the biggest shot of the entire game with his three pointer uh, with just over a minute left. Then he blocked it. He says he was at the rim on the next possession, so he backed it up. He's played pretty well. Um, it's uh, you know he, he has not played a flawless series by any means. Um, he he's six foot ten. He's as athletic as anybody on the court, but he really struggles defensively with awareness sometimes. But his offensive gifts are just so pronounced that it's really difficult to hold him down. So do we just write it off as youth? As what? As youth, as a youthful player saying things that maybe he should keep inside the locker room. Yeah, I think 
that's what that's certainly what the Nuggets seem to say, you know. But but again, the next day after he hits that huge shot in Game Five, Michael Malone said that the thing that he loved about um, Porter Jr. is that whether it's confidence, whether it's just not really understanding the gravity of the of the stakes, he he will take a shot no matter when, and it paid off for them in Game Five, and and he was also another reason yesterday why they were able to hold him off in Game Six. Well, obviously the winner of this series plays the Lakers. If you're the Lakers, you're sitting around, first of all, you're getting an extra couple of days rest, which certainly can't hurt. But if you're the Lakers, I mean, you're going to school on what Denver's doing defensively, right? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, may, I, may, I don't know if you'd go so far for the Lakers as thinking, hey, let's let the Clippers take a you know double-digit lead and then see what happens. But yeah. there's absolutely a lot to be gained from, from what they're doing. You know, I thought that, uh, really, what the, what Denver did so well yesterday was limiting um, the easy points after the first quarter for the Clippers. You know, not letting them run as much. Again, some of that goes back to just making shots, but not letting them run that much. Not letting them get easy shots uh, down and inside. Uh, you know, just there are such easy opportunities, and the Clippers are so talented that if you let them get the easy baskets, they are um, they are liable to, to run off a big lead on you. So when they started shutting that down, I thought that was a huge moment. Um, you know, they've. Uh, I thought that Paul George again played really well, and Kawhi Leonard did too. But um, they, the way they were able to minimize the impacts of the role players uh, can't be overstated. You know, Lou Williams, Chris Harrell, who are uh, yeah, average thirty four points a game in the regular season together. Uh, they've been really absent offensively and really struggled, and it's become something that is no longer just a blip. I mean, this has been happening since really the start of the first round. So that is that is not something that's going to change in one game you know I, I really do think that um, I would not expect both those guys to have 20 plus in game 7 but but you should expect a little bit more from them and I'm sure that's what the Clippers are trying to figure out how they can suss out um, a little more diversity of their offense Andrew let me go back let's go back at the beginning of the playoffs when most people felt it was going to be LA versus LA in the west it was going to be Milwaukee Toronto likely in the east obviously the latter has not happened because, first of all, Milwaukee, they got they got taken apart, and then onto the Kumpo gets hurt late. But that wasn't really the reason why they lost the series. I think it surprised some people that Milwaukee was shut down the way they were. Uh, not so much with the Boston-Toronto series. We kind of figured that was going to go deep, you know, six, seven games for sure. Are you surprised that Boston emerged? Miami's 
you know, their toughness is something that you see come through. They talk about it a lot, but that toughness from Jimmy Butler on down is just so apparent, and I love the way Bam Adebayo is playing, and so I don't really know which way I want that series to go, but it's it's going to be a really fun matchup. Oh, I agree completely, but it's interesting that I mean, you got Jalen Brown, who's terrific and been playing terrific, and Jason Tatum is Jason Tatum. He's a star player, but Marcus Smart, to me, has been the catalyst for this series, not only offensively what he's contributed, but how about the block on Kyle Lowry the other night? Yeah, I mean, that's Marcus Smart. I mean, he just does the winning plays. You know, that's um, that's there, there, there's a lot of comparison in the regular season to the way he and Patrick Beverly kind of did the same kind of dirty work for their teams. Uh, but, but Smart has been oh, so much fun to watch. I, I just think that that kind of player who's so selfless uh, is – Sometimes lost art, and he's doing it with a plum. I look at, uh, and, and we haven't talked about the Lakers yet. And I mean, they've been kind of uh, idle and sitting around and waiting. And I've been watching the Lakers from the beginning of the games to the end of the game, just every game. And, and I'm impressed with uh, with the way that. First, I've always been impressed with LeBron James, and I'm not going to get into the who's better, LeBron James or Michael Jordan. That's a silly argument. The fact of the matter is, LeBron James is a leader. There is no question about that. And it's amazing the way the, the rest of this team just falls in the line. They listen to him. I mean, basically, they got two coaches. They got one on the bench and one on the floor. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing that has been really, um, I think, interesting for me. If someone doesn't cover the team but watch on the outside, just, you know, wondering kind of what the power structure would be like with that organization this year because – you know, Frank Vogel was coming in. How would he mesh with LeBron? LeBron's clearly uh, the guy who commands so much respect. You know, could when it came down to it, like where does that where does that respect lie? Where, where does the power lie? But I feel like Vogel has done a really impressive job of of guiding this team to where it is, especially defensively. And you see, like there there does seem to be a lot of mutual respect between them, and that LeBron is not taking over the team. Um, it is really a sign of like Vogel playing to LeBron's strengths and LeBron understanding what he has to do within the scheme to get better. And it's just been a really impressive kind of way that if, if coach and player have complemented one another. Um, LeBron's, again, like LeBron, what he's doing at his age, I think this is year 17 for him, is just unprecedented. When you think about uh, seeing the, some of the opponents he's playing against, you know, guys who are, are slowing down, who are younger than him uh, in these series. I look at Russell Westbrook, James Harden, um, and, and yet he is kind of still the guy who is going out there and dunking and catching alley oops and you know starting the fast break. And his his level of stamina, I think, is contagious with the team. You know, they they work that much harder because of him. Two days ago, uh, we kind of got the idea that Mike D'Antoni was staying in Houston. Well, he made the announcement that he's not shocked. when the Rockets were in Hawaii to play the Clippers uh, on their way the Rockets were on their way to Japan and uh, they, you know it was pretty it was very well known at that point that D'Antoni had only one year left on his deal and there wasn't there was no extension it was just kind of like a, is this a lame duck situation and there was a reporter who asked him in Hawaii like what do you think of playing in the state you know preseason in Honolulu and he said I love it I, 
paraphrasing, he said, I love it. I might be back here in December. You know, and he laughed because it was like, you know, will I, will I be fired? Will I be around this team anymore? No one, no one knew. But he kind of leaned into the awkwardness of having, you know, just basically one year left on his deal. So it did seem like that he was well aware that if things didn't go well, that um, he could be on the outs. And maybe this was his decision to get ahead of a potential firing. We don't know that yet, but there does seem to be you know some interest from other teams in D'Antoni. I think that the Houston experience, although it didn't lead to a title, uh, they went for it. And, and I thought the way he showed how malleable he was with playing, you know, no center this year, uh, building everything around James Harden. Um, I think that really showed that D'Antoni is still a really strong coach in this league. I, I don't want to catch you off guard. I'm just going to ask you your opinion. Uh, you got Philadelphia, Indiana, New Orleans out there, job vacancies. Where does D'Antoni fit best of those three teams? Do you have any thought about it? Um, you know, th- there had been uh, early talk about how Indiana had interest in him, so I guess my mind immediately goes there because there's been previously reported interest, it seems like, from, from the Pacers. Um, you know, obviously, I don't as, as enticing as it would be to have uh, you know Zion uh, out there, kind of within a D'Antoni scheme. You know, could you build everything around you know a talent like that? Um, I, maybe the better fit is a guy like Oladipo, and maybe and Sabonis, and see what they can do. And and, and really, it, maybe that's the what makes the most sense for Indiana because um, you know do you do you entice a guy like Victor Oladipo to stay in Indiana longer if you say, hey, look, we're bringing in the guy. Look what he did with James Harden. Houston. He built. He tailored the entire thing around his talent and what he could do. Um, let's maximize your talent. If there's any kind of a you know a pitch like that, maybe that's able, you're able to keep a franchise level star in Indianapolis a little bit longer. Uh, maybe that's part of the appeal. Is look what we can do for you. We are, we are we are building this team. We're making this hire with our superstars in mind. I think that'd be pretty persuasive. Well, you remember what was said when McMillan got fired that people around him said basically that, uh, that he wasn't up to date with today's NBA. And what does that mean? That means that they don't shoot the three enough. And, you know, who do you got? D'Antoni. But, uh, you know, the Philadelphia situation is intriguing. But let me go back to Houston because I had a thought in watching the Rockets in their last game against the Lakers. I don't see Harden and Westbrook looking for each other. They look like they're independent of each other. And, and have no problem playing one-on-one basketball. Yeah, I mean, that's I, I, that has been the central criticism of, of adding Westbrook to Harden, you know, since it happened, was, well, how is this going to work? They're two of the highest usage players in the league. They need the ball in their hands to be effective. Westbrook was a notoriously bad, you know, shooter, catch-and-shoot player. So is, is that really the player you need to compliment Harden? Is that really the player who's going to extend the defense and cause defenses to stay honest uh, by, you know, opening up the lane. I don't, it never seemed to be the right fit. Now, Westbrook did play exceptionally well in that role at times this year. I think better than certainly my expectations. Like, I'm thinking about after the trade down line, especially when without a center, they were just unlocked and that thing was rolling. Uh, there might be not be a team that was hurt worse by that, uh, by the stoppage than them because they really had seemed even though they had some bad losses in March, they really had seemed like they were figuring out kind of how to work that no-center offense. But I, I still think that in the playoffs, things are going to slow down, and you need shooting. You need shooting, and Westbrook was never going to be that guy with this team. So it's I, I don't really know where they go from here because they have so much money tied up in those two players 
you know, more than $80 million alone next season, that uh, just kind of transforming that roster was going to be a Herculean task. I, uh, you know, I hear what you're saying, and I, I don't disagree. I, I'm looking at, look, if I'm guarding Russell Westbrook, I'm saying, you want to shoot? Go ahead. Uh, because he's more effective and more destructive when he slashes to the basket. He's stronger the goal. He's extremely difficult to guard. Uh, he also gets to the foul line a lot. Uh, I don't know. It's like, it's like you're trying to fit a round peg into a square hole, and it's just not working. So it'll be very interesting. And then in Philadelphia, I mean, <laughs> you've got a superstar center. You've got a, a really outstanding all-star in Simmons. Uh, and they've got, they got a bunch of other pieces around them. That's going to be an intriguing job for somebody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's still so much potential there. I, I don't know if it's right for Mike D'Antoni. I mean, I, I wonder if, you know, he's he spent the last several years trying to fit two, uh, two stars who need the ball and, and figuring out how to work with them. Philadelphia is that situation again. I'm not sure that might hold much appeal. I mean, who knows? But um, the way that Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons play together has been something that is puzzling at times because just they both seem to be wanting to do the same things and it's um yeah I, I i don't i don't really know it's an attractive job it's it's also extremely hard you know because that's again they don't seem to be extremely complimentary players but there is if, if anyone can unlock it the potential is through the roof but the trouble is is in the details most people felt that you know th- that the lakers would get more trouble from the clippers than they would the nuggets now i'm not so sure yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. I mean, it's the, the Clippers still are going to present, if they can advance, uh, a ton of challenges. But, again, if, if Denver wins this game, the you know, Lakers are going to get a team that is just absolutely red hot. Now, uh, they face that sort of team with Portland, you know, a team that came in with all the momentum, uh, that was riding just extreme levels of confidence, and they put them out pretty quickly you know, in five games. But, but Denver is really a different challenge because of – just the star power of Jokic and Murray. I mean, the way they're just the, the size um, and, and the way they've just sustained their performances. I mean, they're both shooting better than 45%, I want to say, over the playoffs from three-point land. Um, just devastating in the way they are able to take over games. The challenge would be, uh, can Denver's role players who have, you know, at their best, hurt Clippers the most in this series? You know, I'm thinking of Torrey Craig in Game 6 and Paul Millsap in Game 5, Michael Porter in Game 5. If, if they can show up, and of course, then the Nuggets have a chance. But the Nuggets can't beat the Lakers with just two guys alone. And the Clippers, although the role guys have struggled at times this series, if they can get through, I still think their depth um, could pose a lot of problems with the Lakers. You know, the Lakers have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that they can, they like a little adversity. I mean, look what they did in, in Portland. Look what they've done against Houston. They just seem to thrive on it. Yeah, what was the team that beats them in the first game of the yeah, series? Right. That's the lesson so far. Yeah, and look, the Clippers still have to be considered the favorite to beat the Nuggets, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't. Let's put it this way: I'm not betting my house on the lake on the Clippers against Denver. I'm just not. And I think it goes back again to the experience the Nuggets have in these uh, high stress, high stakes situations, and how they seemingly are unaffected by it, and how the Clippers. The moment seemed to, has seemed to get to them the last two games. Um, you know, they've. It's really hard to build a double-digit lead like they have to build a 16-point lead in Game Five, a 19-point lead in Game Six. That is really hard to do. You know, they they, they built them very quickly. You know, in the first half. Um, so, 
you know that the, the star power and the, and the level of talent when locked in with the Clippers is still something that's rare in this league right now among the teams that are left. And yet, um, it's that's the way they've been able to, you know, be their own worst enemy and really, as Doc Rivers said, not allow themselves to be great is as a source of obvious and great concern by now. Um, I, it, I just don't know in 48 hours between the two games kind of what they can do to write some of these things that have been plaguing them all year when it comes to giving up leads. Well, one thing is for sure, Adam Silver and everybody in the NBA front office has to be thrilled with, A, the way things have gone in this playoffs with a lot of exciting basketball and surprise endings with Milwaukee being ousted. I mean, they have the top two seeds in the East. They're gone. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, I think it's a, a real sign that the bubble is an unpredict- unpredictable environment. You know, and we, there was a lot of talk about that as the playoffs began of could this playoffs breed uncertainty because of the lack of home court advantage, the lack of travel. There's, there's less wear and tear on players. Um, I, I don't, you know, I don't know that how much of that can be ascribed to what's happened so far, but I do think that it doesn't hurt an underdog to be fresher, to feel fresher, and maybe if that's helped at all. Um, then yeah, that, that that is the bubble effect happening in real time. Uh, I do think that Miami ended up just being a nightmare matchup for for, for Milwaukee, of course. But if this was um, this has been something that I'm interested about Game Seven too. You know, usually going to a Game Seven and there is that home court feel. Uh, there is a certain amount of pressure. I think you feel from that audience. Uh, it's gone now, and clearly Denver is is um, taking that to their advantage in ways that the Clippers are not. What I think about the the Miami Boston series is, I think this is going to be exciting because there's a lot of mirror images of these two teams. They play similar basketball. They're extremely well coached. Both teams, uh, they've got guys that electrify you. They got players. This is a true indication and an indictment of team basketball. The way both Miami and Boston play. Yep, and that's and that's why I thought that the previous round Toronto and. Boston was so fun. You know, that was those traits were both inside both those teams as well. This will be another one. Um, it's I, I think that we, we hear a lot about heat culture and what the Miami does with their players, starting from their famous preseason conditioning test. You know, for, you know, something that's kind of a hallmark of Pat Riley, that toughness from those you know '90s Knicks uh, that you've seen for the last 25 years in Miami. Uh, but you know, Boston has got a backbone like that too, and I, and I really do. I like seeing Kemba Walker in these situations because although he hasn't been this far in his NBA career, you know we, we don't have to think that back that hard to think about what he did at the Big East in that run of the national title and how special that was. So you know that he's a gamer. You know he's ready for this and he's tough. So um, yeah, this is this feels like kind of like a, a mirror image type series again. And I don't really know where to give the edge, but um, I I think that the way Miami is playing is just so, uh, so confident and so tough that they're, I think they're really hard to beat. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. I had a friend of mine on my podcast the other night who's a Hall of Famer. He played before, uh, probably before you were born, in Dave Bing, who was a standout Hall of Famer with Detroit primarily. When I watched Dave Bing play, or you look him on tape, I mean, you can Google it or whatever and take a look at him. You look at Kemba Walker, that's Dave Bing. It's, it's, it's a reincarnation of Dave Bing. So I mentioned it to Dave. He goes, you know, I really, no one's ever said that to me, but I'm going to go take a look at it. And I said, Dave, consider it a compliment for Kemba Walker. Because Kemba Walker, if he ever gets to be the level of Dave Bing, he's going to love it. 
Yeah, Kemba's, I mean, it was one of those players that you you wish that um, a player that seems to be, you know, uh, great potential and they're stuck in these markets, they're stuck in these teams that just are going nowhere. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was, I think I was just, I was just glad to see him go to a team as a contender just because it's like, okay, what, who is Kemba Walker, the NBA player? You know, like, is, is he that winning player we knew at UConn? Can he translate that to the NBA? Um, you know, I'm glad that he's healthy. I'm glad that his, his, his knee doesn't appear to be as banged up as it was in the regular season. Um, but it's, he is an undeniable factor for why this team is here. I mean, there's obviously so many, you know, starting with Brad Stevens, coaching staff, but uh, I, I just, you know, Walker is, he brings a level of comfort, again, playing in high-stakes situations that is hard to, hard to fake. Thanks for your time, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Stay safe. Thank you so much. Andrew Greif. L.A. Times does a heck of a job. And I'll bring in a guy who, speaking of Boston and um, and Miami, the guy who's going to have a ringside seat at this matchup that's coming up. And he's a he's a, a the the embodiment of technical. Play-by-play guy. He's Sean Grandy of the Boston Celtics. What do you say, Sean? That's an extraordinary compliment, considering the considering the source. I would love to have seen you bubbled up with nothing but monitors and Max eating pizza next to you, trying to trying to work your way through this uh, this puzzle. No, he, we've all been uh, forced to piece together. Yeah, he's uh, no. When I work with Maxwell. Um, Max would think nothing about bringing a plate of food to the table at the before the opening tip-off, and eat his way through the first quarter. Uh, but no, what I, what I told you, the amazing part of this whole thing is the first time we do a game. For those who don't know, we're doing the games at TV Garden in the Celtics locker room, which is sort of the hub for the video feeds. When they come from Orlando, they come to the Celtics to, to the Garden, and they get shot out other places. So we have a lot of different monitors. But the first time we went in to do it. You're doing all kinds of security, right? You're doing a health check, you know, a COVID check, getting your temperature checked, and then you go through the garden through all these different security checks of various places, and you're in this cavernous big 20,000-seat arena. Anyway, the first time you work your way there, and you go through all these health checks and security checks and secret doors or whatever, and here you are, and I look up in the second quarter, and Max had pizza delivered. Yeah. So it's like, it's... You know, I, I thought we were, you know, it was like, you know, being in a, Well, he's uh, he has his priorities, you know. Yeah, no question. Uh, you're getting ready to start what I think is going to be a great series, and I don't overuse the word "great" too many times, but the the ingredients between Boston and Miami is almost a mirror image of these two teams. They play great team basketball, obviously very well coached. Uh, Boston is. Uh, I look at, and I'm going to just I'm going to sing the praises of Marcus Smart. Not only for the phenomenal block on Kyle Lowry the other night, but we're all waiting for Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum to score, and Marcus Smart comes up with the big shot. I think he has been uh, the best-kept secret in the NBA, not to you or to me, but to a lot of people that don't look to him. And that's one of the joys, right, of, of seeing this, is that people that didn't recognize who Marcus Smart is and what he does, that he just makes winning plays. Now you're doing it on the stage with everybody watching the same way people who don't realize that Kyle Lowry isn't a good player. Kyle Lowry isn't like a really good player. Kyle Lowry's going to the Hall of Fame. 
And I don't think people just realize his greatness until Toronto these last couple of years gets on this big stage. And that's sort of the, the beauty of it. And, you know, with, with the Miami matchup, obviously the only Achilles heel that the Raptors had. And by the way, if you take out the seven, the really the 11 games they played against the Celtics this year, Toronto was like the best team in the NBA. They had pretty much the best record and this unbelievable scoring differential. They were the, they played the best basketball of anybody in the entire league, except for the eleven games against the Celtics, who were the you know the mongoose to their snake or the snake to their mongoose or whatever. But they were undersized. When you play Lowry and Van Vliet, you're going to be undersized defensively, and there's a matchup you can take advantage of. Miami, you talk about the mirror image, and isn't it funny that we spend all this time talking about Mike D'Antoni and playing without a center? And isn't this amazing that P.J. Tucker and Robert Covington at 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, whatever, are the biggest guys. Bam Adebayo is barely 6'8", maybe 6'9". You know, but nobody talks about Miami with this extraordinary versatile defense where everybody can guard everybody, and that's the that's the mirror image effect. Plus, you have the you know the ultimate alpha male right now, Jimmy Butler, and it's, it it should be it should be a tremendous series. What's impressive to me. You, when you look at Jimmy Butler, you see star, uh, and he could lead the team in scoring every night, but that's not where they are. I mean, they, they, they are balanced. I think one game they had eight guys in double figures, but this is like routine to this team. They share the ball extremely well. The Celtics share the ball extremely well. Uh, that's why, I mean, it, you talk about a test to two coaches. How are you going to figure out this other team? But I had a, an old friend of mine on who's a Hall of Famer in the NBA by the name of Dave Bing. He played, brief, played briefly with Boston at the end of his career. But I told Dave the other day, I said, you know, there's a player playing right now that reminds me of you. And he says, who's that? And I said, Kemba Walker. He goes, really? And I said, no, Kemba. I said, he, he may not have the dynamics of a great shot, but he shoots it well enough. I see Kemba, I see Dave Bing and Kemba Walker. He goes, well, I'm going to take a look at the tape. So he calls me last night, and he goes, I looked at the tape. He goes, I see what you're talking about, but I think this guy is terrific on his own. Now, that's typical of Dave. Dave is always going to re- reject any kind of compliments. But this is a compliment to Kemba Walker. If I'm putting him in the same conversation with Dave Bing, he, he must be something. And Kemba Walker was the MVP of that series for the first five games against Toronto, and Nick Nurse realized it, which is why all of a sudden, going deep into the coaching bag of tricks after two weeks against the same team, he literally threw a box and one at Kemba the last couple of games, and the Celtics, you know, they got through Game 6 and Game 7, and they got through to the Conference Finals in spite of Kemba not being productive, and it really threw him off his game. But, we, you know, you never really know at this time of year who's hurt a little bit, who's banged up, whatever. Uh, but the Celtics need more from Kemba. They need the Kemba from the first nine games of the playoffs, not the last two, because this is all hands on deck, including for the Celtics, maybe Gordon Hayward at some point in this series, because the Celtics survived Toronto without Gordon Hayward. The minutes, because Gordon Hayward plays the minutes when Kemba's not on the floor. And that was sadly missed offensively for the Celtics in the last, you know, they got by with Philadelphia without it, but they barely got through Toronto without it. And they, they're going to need Gordon Hayward back here at some point. Uh, talking with uh, Sean Grandy, the radio voice of the Boston Celtics, I noticed a couple of games, and I'm a big fan of this. I, I preface it by telling you that I'm a big fan of Jason Tatum's. I've, lo- I've liked the way he plays from the time I saw him at Duke in the playoffs before he came to Boston. And he just immediately caught my eye. And I, I think he's a complete player that's only going to get better and better and better and become a superstar in this league. 
But if I had one concern the last couple of games, Jason has been uh, he's been careless with the basketball and has turned it over a little bit too much. Game before last, I think he had six turnovers. And I think the last game, maybe three. But it's almost like he doesn't – he tries to go one-on-one sometimes, and he doesn't need to do that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any question. And I thought he was – I thought he played a little too fast and loose, uh, particularly in game six. We sort of started the storyline to me going into the last couple of games of that series were had nothing to do with Toronto because the Raptors could not have carried the championship belt with any better than they did, losing Kawhi Leonard, losing Danny Green. They had a better year in a lot of ways than they had last year. And they showed the storyline of the series was going to be, are the self, you know, in the NBA, you know how this works. The torch doesn't get passed. You have to take it. And you're going to have to pry that title from Kyle Lowry's cold, dead hands. And that means all hands on deck. And it means that if Jason Tatum is the player that we all think he is going to be, and a lot of people think he is right now, he was going to have to step up. And as I said before Game 6 and again before Game 7, when he didn't do it in Game 6, that doesn't mean scoring 45 points. That means making a play. And, you know, sometimes you sort of get lucky sort of laying out a storyline and then it, it plays out in the actual game and he made a play. You know, and now it wasn't a scoring play. It was a gritty play. It was a rebound of a missed free throw that sort of made it a two-possession game instead of one in the final seconds, and that's what you wanted to see from Jason Tatum. It was reminiscent for Celtic fans of Paul Pierce, not his 41 points against LeBron in Game 7, in the exact same Game 7 in the conference semifinals in 2008, but him stealing that jump ball and beating LeBron to the floor and getting that loose ball, giving Boston the possession late in that game. And it was very similar to that. So I think, you know, he is weak. It's so easy to forget he's 22. 22 years old, which is like the age Larry Bird was when he was a rookie. Mm-hmm. Jason Tatum is 22, and a lot's being asked of him, but he's put a lot of that you know, on himself. I think he's willing to, to carry it, and he is learning. And what the Celtics did, the young players, they just learned how to play you know, like a champion because they beat Toronto playing Toronto's, Toronto's game, and that's what made it so. That's why it was so compelling and you know, so dramatic. The Celtics, I think, outscored them by 37 points, and that's on heard of in a seven-game series. Now it's a team by 37 points, but the Raptors found a way, because champions do, to win those close games, and we'll see if the Celtics learn the lessons. Sean, let me talk about uh, the game the other night, um, when you finally finally got away from Toronto. You get, uh, at one point, a 22-point lead. Uh, is that number correct? I think it was 22. And next thing you look, they're up five. Little antsy there, and then the, the two missed free throws by Williams. Jason gets the rebound. He gets knocked down. He goes to the foul line. I think he made one out of two. Tell me those weren't antsy moments for you as a call in the game. Oh, I think it was because you're sensing, you know, it's who you're speaking to. And obviously you're calling a game nowadays, you know, with satellite radio and whatever you're calling it for a worldwide audience. But obviously for Celtic fans, it was, a, it was one of those nights. It was a hockey overtime game in a lot of ways, all night. That sickening feeling you have in the pit of your stomach when your hockey team is playing for their life in overtime, and you know one little break here and there, and the season could be over. So it was just agonizing on the way. But also, you know, because you've been down this road. When you're in a big, you, you can recognize when you're in a moment. When you're calling a game that they're going to be talking about for years to come, you're also recognizing the moment. And I, I think my thought process was, wow, this is exactly what we thought it would be. You knew it was going to be a tough night, and it's a matter of are they going to are they going to pass this test? Are they going to make enough plays to pass this test? And then Jalen Brown gets hurt in the fourth quarter. You know, Kemba, the story that came for three quarters was Kemba just vanishing 
as good as he had been. Remember, he had played the seventh game against Miami uh, four years ago in Charlotte and had a really bad game seven. And instead of erasing those ghosts, they were sort of haunting him again. And it wasn't just, I wasn't talking about missing shots. I don't care if Kemba goes one for nine. I, my bigger problem is that Kemba's 0 for two. That's a much bigger problem to me than, than taking being aggressive and missing shots. He wasn't coming hard off picks. And it was bizarre all of a sudden to see Kemba. And then finally in the fourth quarter, he sort of came back to being Kemba again. But it was, you know, just high drama. It was agony. And you got to call those moments and, and stay in them. You know, that's, that's the hardest part. It's funny, you didn't, you know, the teams you did with Max weren't that good. No. But one thing I didn't, I didn't realize is that when the team started getting good, that Max, who is very much, he's not a homer broadcaster until things really get, like, deep in the playoffs and the stakes get really high. And all of a sudden, he, and that's the hardest part, right? It's like, figure out how to channel the emotion into the game without getting, you know, emotionally lost lost in it, but it was just, you know, it's a classic NBA moment, and again, what I was saying to the start is I would love to see someone of your caliber, this is, in a lot of ways, the most challenging thing I've ever done, like, trying to do this, you've seen, I, I think, in watching some of the TV guys and some of the games, the biggest challenge is the energy level, you know, without fans, and without, you literally, I said this to a friend of mine at Turner the other day, it's a lot closer to acting than I'm really comfortable with, <laughs> you know, because you, you have to put yourself in a place mentally that this is game seven of the Eastern Conference semifinals and you have to do it as if there were 20,000 people in the stands and call it the exact same way and find the cadence and forget all the other stuff around you because that's what the players are doing and that's what the officials are doing and that's what everybody else has to do. So it's it's a unique, you know, environment, I think, for all of us. who do Whatever it is you do in the NBA or any all the sports now, it's a matter of rising to the to the challenge of it, to try to best simulate, as the players are doing, coaches, referee, everybody, try to best simulate the product before March 10th in the current environment. Well, it reminded me of 98 when I was calling the Jets games, and they were really good. Testaverde was having a career year. Curtis Martin led the league in rushing. Uh, their defense was solid, and they went through, and they, had, and they had a huge win in Tampa on the road when Tampa had that great defense. And then they come to the AFC Championship game. They go up 10 nothing on Denver at halftime. Denver. And I was going to call the Super Bowl no matter what because I was doing it for Westwood 1. Westwood. If the Jets had won, I, I was going to do their broadcast. So I really wanted to do the Jet broadcast. And then they found a way to give it away with turnovers in the second half. And it was agonizing to watch because I really felt they were the best of the four teams left in the NFL that year. And, and it was echoed by many people. But, you know, so I know what you're saying, but you got to tell when Kyle Lowry fouls out, you took a sigh of relief, right? Oh, man, I don't think there's any question. And, you're, you know, that's a big storyline part of the game. And it's funny because he picked up his fifth foul earlier. And Max and I didn't, you know, it wasn't like a disagreement. But when he picked it up, it was sort of a lazy foul. And Max was making the point that, hey, he was just trying to give somebody a shot in the ribs. And that's what he does. He's throwing body punches. And I said, you can't do that with a fifth foul. Because now he's in danger of fouling out, which he couldn't have happened. There's no way Toronto was going to beat the Celtics without well, let me interrupt. John, let me interrupt you right here. When he picked the fifth foul, did you say, why is he in the game? It's still the third quarter. No, because, well, it was, I think it was in the, early in the fourth. Oh, early in the fourth, you're right. At that point, still, it was, you have to have Kyle Lowry. You just got to keep him on the floor. It's funny, that part of the game has changed a lot. Brad Stevens is one of the coaches that does it this way. Like, in the old days, two fouls early, and you automatically come out. Brad Stevens and a lot of the younger coaches now tend to gamble a little more, and nine times out of ten, it pays off. When it doesn't, it looks really bad. It happened with Marcus Smart 
Um, earlier in a playoff game and a couple of seeding games that happened with Jalen Brown where he left him in and he got the third and fourth foul in the first half. But nine times out of ten, he trusts his players and they kind of play their way out of it. So that, that part of the game has changed with guys coming out, but that's why I didn't want the fifth foul for Lowry. It was more like, don't give your fifth foul now because you can't, there's no way Toronto wins, uh, you know, wins without him. Yeah. Let, let, let me go to a couple of guys, you know, at various points have contributed uh, Olajale, I thought that Olajale contributed. Wanamaker has contributed. The two Williams uh, have contributed. Do you see Brad Stevens shortening the rotation at all for the series? Well, it's pretty short. I mean, look at look at Game Six. Look at that overtime box score, in which everybody basically played 52, 54 minutes because the bench depth isn't there. I think Robert Williams has earned an extraordinary amount of trust for a, a second-year player who had played very little. Uh, in his first year, whatever you call it this year, um, you know, and he's been hurt a lot. He earned a lot of minutes against Toronto because he could sort of try to keep them on, you know, with a pocket, and Gasol couldn't really run with him. He struggled, obviously, defending them. Uh, you know, it's all about the matchup. I think you see less of them because Miami is, you know, you said the mirror image is going to be a lot of six, seven guys running around. With Miami, you just, you're chasing, you know, Hero and Duncan Robinson and those guys behind the three-point line, and Dragic is a... A different, you know, much different player than Lowry, and is a lot more traditional point guard. So I don't know how much of the bigs you're going to see as far as that depth. What Grant Williams did, I mean, this is a rookie, and you get foul trouble, and then you get Tice in foul trouble, and then eventually fouls out. And here's Grant Williams, barely until the missed free throws, which obviously used hard, had to be racing. You know, he just walks into the situation. It's game seven of the second round. Here's a rookie having to come in because Tyson's in foul trouble, and he has to guard Pascal Siakam. Like two possessions in a row. It's amazing what he did, and he just, you know, kind of makes plays. So I think Brad has trust in those guys, but let's just say again, uh, Gordon Hayward is a major upgrade when you're talking about having being able to bring Marcus Smart off the bench and then being able to spot, you know, if you can get 20 minutes a game, 20 to 22 minutes a game out of Gordon Hayward, that's 20 to 22 minutes a game that you can take some of the load off Brad Watermaker. You can take some of the load off, off Grant Williams. And it just makes things, even Gordon Hayward's 80% is going to give you more from a poise standpoint than those guys are. You mentioned Duncan Robinson. He's had his moments. But how about Tyler Hero, this kid from yeah. Kentucky? I mean, he he's 20 years old. And I'm thinking to myself, look at the nerve this kid's got. He's not afraid to take the big shot in a big spot. And, and he's only gotten better each game that I've watched him play. Yeah, you know, you talk about guys being rookies and this being that, is there, are they really rookies now after they've really been in the league for over a year and they had a four-month break and now they're coming back, it's almost like a mini-second season. But he was doing it, he was doing it in summer league last year and in the preseason, like, he was opening eyes. He had, you know, obviously Kendrick Nunn's an older rookie and finished third in the rookie of the year voting. But, uh, you know, especially when it comes to shooters, we've seen the history of this in this league where, you know, the, the Kyle Corvers and guys like that, they really, they can become great players and great shooters and figure out the rest of the game. But it's, as rookies, they often have a lot of difficulty staying on the floor because they can't defend. And it's one thing to be able to shoot and to be able to run off screens and get free, but Hero has defended at a, a level enough, which you better with Eric Spolster and Pat Riley, to earn, earn minutes. That's really the impressive thing about him. It's a really well-put-together team, and maybe the biggest wild card to me, and there'll be discussions till the end of time about the asterisk and the bubble and what would have happened. Remember, no home court advantage. You'll appreciate this. I did a deep dive last night because I started to ask myself, when's the last time in the Eastern Conference Finals you didn't have the number one seed 
or the number two seed. Now I'm thinking, boy, this maybe has been a while. I had no idea. This is 1969. Wow. We're talking about. Yeah, I didn't realize that till I started doing a deep dive last night because there's been teams that have snuck up, but invariably either the one or the two seed has been the opponent in the conference finals. You have to go back to 1969, which is the fourth seeded uh, Celtics in the Bill Russell's last year, where they did not have a good regular season. They ended up winning a championship, and the three seed Knicks. In 1969, was the last time you'd have a one or a two in the Eastern Conference Finals, which was stunning to me. I just kept going back, like, wow, wow, okay. And I back and back and back and back. So what did home court advantage, you know, what would it have meant? Does Miami beat Milwaukee, period, let alone as easily as they did, if they have to win these games in Milwaukee? Who knows? Because it had more to do with Giannis getting hurt. So yeah. there'll be, this, you know, the Celtics won a, quote, won a seventh game in Toronto. If you're talking about the designated home team, which is meaningless, the quote-unquote road team won every game in the Boston-Toronto series. It was the exact opposite. That doesn't mean anything. But here's what does. Miami made a significant trade with additions at the trade deadline. And they added Andre Iguodala and Jay Crowder to battle-tested, veteran, deep playoff run, defensive-oriented, but great addition. Now, in a regular year, you know you get those guys at the trade deadline. you got six or seven weeks left in the season of a full season where you're flying around, you're playing games. You maybe get a practice or two. Maybe, if you're lucky, in those six or seven weeks to integrate those guys. They just have to do it on the fly. Miami added key pieces to their team, then had four months off and got a full month of practice with them, eight seed, three preseason games, eight seeding games, and into the playoffs. So it's almost like they bypassed the downside of adding guys at the deadline, which it's hard, as good as they can make your team, the time to properly integrate them, they got that with Iguodala and Crowder. And it showed substantially to where clearly Miami is not the fifth best team in the Eastern Conference. You know, who knows what would happen had these games been home or away or whatever. But that, to me, is the big advantage of the, the bubble situation for them is not home road. But the fact that they got all that extra time to integrate Iguodala and Crowder into their group. Real quick, Boston had the toughest series with Toronto than Miami did with Milwaukee. Is that a factor? I think it would have been a factor if they had, in a normal year, you would have gone right to the the next round. In fact, you win a Game 7 on a Friday night, because this has happened before with the Celtics, where you win a series on a Friday night, and Game 1 of the next series is Sunday afternoon. I've seen that over my years with the Celtics. It's happened multiple times. And the team that went through the brutal long series is really at a disadvantage and struggles coming out. I think if, if game one of the series had been yesterday and not tomorrow, I think it would have been a bigger advantage for Miami, given the fact that it's been three, going to be three or four days. They might even extend the series because the West is going to go long. They might, there might even you have the Monday Night Football collision coming up on Monday with ESPN. I wouldn't be surprised if these series, these conference finals, get extended a little bit, which could help the Celtics with Gordon Hayward. Uh, I don't think it is as big a factor as it would have been mm-hmm. uh, otherwise. Plus, the big issue in the NBA right now, our big discussion, is about this lack of travel. What, why have the games been so good? Why has the, the quality of play been so good? And people are realizing that this load management kick the league's been on the last few years, maybe it's not about whether a guy plays 32 or 34 minutes. It's the fact that he plays a game, and then you're flying three hours to the next city and playing again the next. That travel, which has now been eliminated, is a much bigger factor in the level of play than we had realized before. 
and that's another factor is that the Celtics didn't have to fly to a different city or whatever. They've had three or four days like everybody else on the same campus. So I think a lot of that advantage that normally would have come from the extra rest gets mitigated. Yeah, good point. I didn't see the Boston Globe or the Boston Herald today. Patriots win yesterday. Did the headline say Tom who? <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. I think people are sort of enjoying that to, uh, to some degree, but Tom Brady didn't have receivers last year in New England. He didn't yeah. have receivers uh, in Tampa, but obviously that's the beauty of the NFL, right? One week and, uh, you know, everything could change next week. But I, I'm not sure anyone, there have been a more anticipated seeing a player, NFL player in a different uniform in the history of the league than, than seeing Tom Brady walk out in, in pewter yesterday. It was a little weird. Hey, look, Tom Brady and Cam Newton, they dress basically the same, right? Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> similar. It's fun. That's really one of the fun storylines to me of like, the NFL season, let alone the Patriots, is watching Bill Belichick. It's not like, okay, Tom Brady left, and here comes Andy Dalton, right? <laughs> it, you're completely changing what you do, yeah. and it's good. It's, it's going to be fun to see Belichick. You know, they're playing Seattle next week against Russell Wilson. This is going to be this is fun to watch. It's fun to watch these, you know, the coaches sort of um, have to evolve. Appreciate your time, Sean. I'll, I'll talk to you soon uh, during the series, perhaps, but you stay safe. Thank you. You got it, my friend. Sean Grandy, radio voice of the Boston Celtics. Yeah, I looked at Brady after the game yesterday, dressed the same as Cam Newton. Oh, no, Cam Newton had that yellow suit and the hat and I thought it looked cool, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was really cool watching Brady go head-to-head with Drew Brees. Neither one was really, well, Brady was a factor because he threw the pick six and another interception as well, but Drew Brees wasn't the reason why New Orleans won yesterday. Their defense played great, but they're going to be reckoned with. If you think Drew Brees is through with uh, 350 to 400-yard games, you're sadly mistaken, my friend. He's got a ton of weapons that can go get it done. Uh, as for New England, they got the toughest schedule in the league. Don't be fooled by yesterday's win over Miami. They're going to fly cross-country and play Seattle. And Seattle got something for them. Russell Wilson had a huge day yesterday, over 300 yards, four touchdowns. Fun day yesterday in the National Football League. Hope you had fun today. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. This is Howard David Live. I'm Howard David. Hoping you have a great day and stay safe. For listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.